Welcome to Employed, a podcast about careers, from minimum wage to six-figure incomes, high school diplomas to PhDs, you'll hear stories from different professionals, their everyday work life, and what it took to get there. Whether you're at a point of having to make a career choice, or you simply like to hear what others are passionate about, Employed is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm Allie, and today we are talking with Nancy, an RN who works in the ICU. It like quickly changed my perspective to how I need to be as, as a nurse to, you know, to help people and render to aid any type of aid during those very difficult times. And any small act of kindness was the world. Tonight, we are joining Nancy, who is a nurse here in San Antonio. So Nancy, can you introduce yourself and tell everyone a little bit about what you do? Definitely. So good to see you, Allie, again. Uh, Well, my name is Nancy, and I am a registered nurse here at a local hospital in San Antonio, Texas. As you and I were kind of talking earlier, I recently made a transition in earlier this year to work as a critical care nurse. So I work in the uh, surgical trauma intensive care unit. I guess the main contrast is instead of working, you know, with more stable patients, they're more Patients are more critical and your ratio drops from two to one, sometimes even one to one, depending on how bad they are and how like close monitoring patients need at at the moment. Yeah, I I love it. (laughs) And I'm ready to answer any questions you have for me. So can you tell me the level of education and experience that is required for your position and something else that I think is really helpful is to know the difference between an RN, CNA, LVN, things like that. Can you kind of explain all of that? Definitely. In simple terms, CNA stands for Certified Nursing Assistant or Nurses Aid. And basically what they do, what they do is what the title suggests. They are integral in, in basically in the flow of units. They assist nurses with anything that we need and regards to patient care and stocking up supplies and checking vital signs for patients. And they basically are said they're like our wingman, our second hand in, in helping us with, you know, whatever it is that we need. An LPN or LVN, so a licensed vocational nurse or practical nurse, how they differ to a registered nurse is that they still have to complete I, I believe some like core nursing classes, but usually their training is about a year. Once they complete their year training, they also have to sit for an NCLEX exam, but it's designed specifically for LPNs. And then their scope usually entails passing some medications, usually helping take vital signs and reporting to registered nurses or physicians for any sudden change. So their scope is a little more limited. So to become a nurse, usually it requires like, you know, just the usual, you know, four years of undergraduate classes. In those four years, though, you generally have to take main core nursing classes. And those usually entail like organic chemistry, biochemistry, I think it's like nutrition, microbiology. So I've had the experience of applying to nursing school in two different states. So every state was a little different, but once you complete those classes, you're able to apply. And then usually some programs require some further work experience, if you have any, or any volunteering or service hours. 
And once you get accepted, most programs are traditionally three years. In those three years, you have classes and clinicals with, you know, supervision from, from a teacher, a professor. And then once you finish your three years, you have to sit for your boards, your NCLEX. And then if you pass, then you are granted the permission to care for patients, basically. So that's like the traditional route. And then there are other routes, of course, if it's non-traditional, it's for people usually that take accelerated nursing programs, like post-baccalaureate degrees in other fields. Tell me a little bit about this exam. How long is it? And... Is it all like written questions? Yeah. So it's an actual like computer exam. Sit in a room. They are <laughs> very scary. They check everything. Make sure you're not like cheating. This exam is, I believe, a maximum of 280 questions, if I remember correctly. What are the demographics of the nursing field? What percentage of males versus females are there? And what is the typical age range that you find? Males in the nursing field now is about 12%, where I believe a couple of years ago, it was about nine to 10. Of course, we know that nursing tends to be, you know, traditionally a more female prominent profession. And the amount of males that are entering this career is, is increasing. And honestly, I think the youngest I've seen is 21 the oldest, probably, usually it's right before retirement, I would say like early 60s, uh, sometimes mid 60s at the most. It's a very diverse, you, you see a lot of people with different experiences as well. And so it kind of really adds a lot to, to your knowledge bank. What is the salary that someone can typically expect to make in your position or your number of years in the field or, or how does that increase? How does that vary? Of course, it varies by state. In the state of Texas, nurses make approximately 40, I think it was somewhere between 43 to 71,000 a year. Of course, a new graduate nurse gets paid, I believe, in San Antonio, for example, I think the minimum is 21 an hour. Of course, as you have years of experience or if you have, you know, additional certifications, your, you know, your hourly wage would go up. And I think nationwide, the average is about 75000 Yeah. And of course, like, you know, any other state, the more years and more uh, specialized you are, for example, in like a certain field, you know, more time you accumulate in, in a specific area, of course, the more you would you would make. What are your typical work hours? The number of shifts you work and how long those shifts are and how much they're spaced out? Definitely. Yeah, can you touch on that? Sure. So nursing hours vary, of course, by, you know, specialty. They vary by location and where you work. Uh, because I work in an inpatient setting, which is a hospital. Nursing shifts there are typically 12-hour shifts. For my family, working nights has worked best. Typically, I, my shifts start at 6.45 p.m. They go until around 7.15, 7.30 the following day, the following morning. I guess a typical night for me would be, you know, I gather, we have huddle. Basically, the whole night crew that's on for that night, we all meet together as a group. 
as a staff and we all get kind of report of what's going on on the unit, a very brief report of what's happening, what patients to watch and look out for. And then shortly after that, we call break and then we go to our designated assignment and we receive report from the day nurse. The day nurse kind of gives us like a, a very a brief but specific just overall picture of, you know, who this patient is, why they're here, what's their past medical history, why are they so critical, what medications they're on, what are their assessment by systems, you know, like neurologically, cardiovascularly, respiratory wise, the day nurse excuses herself and for the day and I'm left on my own to right. kind of like start from the beginning and, you know, assess my patient. I want to know what their baseline is when I'm coming on shift, you know? So it's expected of us to, to gather that initial like baseline of our patient as soon as we come in. Cause from, from the time that we're getting report, you know, to the time that, you know, the night nurse finally comes in, you know, a lot can change in a patient. And usually when patients are critical, they, they change really fast and they can go downhill pretty quickly. Always establishing a baseline for my patient is like my number one priority. There's a lot of monitoring, a lot of charting that needs to be done. And then you basically play that, you know, catch up game all night, trying to make sure that, you know, they're doing well, that we're implementing the proper orders, you know, that we're getting all the lab work done, all the blood work. And it's pretty much a game, honestly, of making sure your patient doesn't die, you know, it, you know, for it to sound not to sound too gruesome, but, you know, with patients so ill, you, that's pretty much the the goal. You want them to make it through your shift. You want them to be able to, you know, you hope that they respond to the treatment that you're giving them. And of course, one of the main jobs as a nurse is, you know, we're with the patient pretty consistently. And so, um, we're always in there like every hour at least, you know, being becoming familiarized with our patient. And usually by the end of the shift, you you need to be very familiar with them. You need to know them like the back of your hand, you know, and oftentimes it's becoming really familiar with your patient has led me, for example, to, you know, to find things that were not right with my patient and, you know, bring up the concern to a doctor and, you know, usually you end up discovering things. You're like, oh man, this patient has this now because, you know, you know, X, Y, Z, because you found this, you know, and I'm like, and I've just been very grateful for those moments for sure. But sometimes it's very difficult to, you know, notice all those things because every single person that you encounter can react very differently to a similar diagnosis, you know? Anyway, and that's typically what kind of happens in 12 or 13 hours. It can be easy peasy, you know, if, you know, everything goes smoothly. And then some nights you are literally playing catch up, just trying to stay on top of all the orders that are coming in because, you know, the patient took a sudden turn and now you're trying to save their life. Well, story time. This is what I've been <laughs> so excited for. So what is the best day that you've had at your job. I'm sure you have a lot of good days, but when is um, a shift that comes to mind where you came home and you felt like you were just really accomplished and satisfied with what you had done that day? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I guess any day that a patient is alive under my care is a good day. I bet. <laughs> um, an encounter that has been very meaningful to me. 
and has kind of been an affirmation of, you know, everything that I'm doing is, you know, better than I had expected or anticipated is, um, I mean, believe it or not, it's, I think it happened when one of my patients was about to expire. Obviously the fact that the patient was expiring was not the best thing. However, the circumstances revolving around that situation were very smooth and more expected and peaceful uh, than I had anticipated. This was something that wasn't sudden and it was something that family members were expecting. So the fact that I was able to be a part of that was, it was a very sacred, very beautiful uh, perspective to, to death. Of course, when, you know, deaths occur, it's very, most of the time in a trauma surgical setting, it's very unexpected and very quick. And it happens in a very traumatic way. Those days are probably one of the worst days when you hear family members just yell in agony. Like I cannot even fathom to think what they're going through. And, but you know, there are circumstances and they're very few sometimes where, you know, deaths are anticipated and it's something that's been talked about, talked about as an interdisciplinary group and families have been prepared and it's kind of like set up, kind of like like smoothly transitioned. Mm-hmm. And we take steps to, you know, ensure that those things happen in a very peaceful manner. Mm-hmm. And so having family members all congregate together for those very last moments with their family member is there was one instance where it was very touching, very peaceful, and it kind of just gave me a different perspective to to death and how to treat each death as well with as much humanity as possible. Yeah. I think it's very easy sometimes to disassociate yourself with that human aspect of death because it's either because you don't want to get too attached or because, you know, sometimes you're just in the grind of trying to get things done that you, you know, you're having to do all these interventions that you kind of just forget that this person is a person and that you know, we need to keep in mind of that first before, you know, trying to just treat them like a checkbox. I think those were, I'll never forget. I think that was one of my most meaningful, good experiences, truthfully. Of course, there are experiences where, you know, family members get to see their loved ones recover fully. And those are always beautiful. But I think that experience was a very positive one. And I didn't anticipate that at all. Yeah, And it just gave me a new, a new light to to death and that it can be a beautiful and positive thing. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I'm, and I'm not sure if you knew that I used to work in hospice. Oh yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and one of the previous guests on this podcast was one of my coworkers from hospice and it, it, it is death is such a beautiful thing. And I don't think unless, unless you've, you've worked in it and are around uh-huh. that you, you don't get to experience or maybe you just don't have that view on death generally. Death is a spectrum. I've realized in the time, in the very short time I've been in critical care where I've been exposed to more death is that um, death is a spectrum. It can be as peaceful as you plan it out to be. And unfortunately it can also be to the very polar end where it's unexpected and it is quick and sudden and it's tragic and I think remembering to add the human component in those unexpected and tragic times is 
you know, what can possibly make that death a little more peaceful to the family member that is suffering there at the bedside. Definitely. Well, I totally understand why you would pick, pick that as a good day at your job. So thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of alluded to kind of a bad day at work, but was there a specific story you wanted to share? Yeah, I guess, I guess a very bad day at work is when would possibly be that like polar end where, you know, death happens so unexpectedly. I mean, of course, every patient you care for is critically ill. And so death is always a possibility. But, you know, when you have people, when you have patients that are, that appear to be steadily improving and then suddenly take like a 180 turn out of nowhere, it can be very traumatizing. I mean, I can't imagine how traumatizing that be to a family member where they have been told by, you know, physicians and nurses that, you know, they seem to be progressing and then to all of a sudden, hey, you know, we are currently um, doing compressions on your loved ones. Um, You need to come to the hospital now and, you know, prepare to say goodbye. And uh, possibly if, you know, we don't, we don't get them back, you know, Mm -hmm. that was perhaps that night was, it wasn't even my patient. It was my neighbor's patient. And this patient, you know, had been there for quite a while and we had expected him to, you know, make a full recovery and be discharged and, or at least downgraded to, you know, a more stable unit. And that night something was just off. And then before we knew it, the alarms were ringing and there was a code blue getting announced on our unit and we all stopped and ran to help her. And it, it just, we had all become familiar with the pa- with the mm-hmm. patient's family, his wife in particular. And so when we were about like 45 minutes into already, you know, trying to resuscitate this patient, we, uh, you know, the doctors had already called the wife and the wife was already waiting in the lobby. And, you know, it's difficult, you know, to, you know, be standing over, you know, this patient that you've, you know, kind of gotten to know and that you've interacted with and, you know, seeing them, you know, now lifeless and you're like, Oh my gosh, please don't like try to make it, trying to make it. And then of course, you know, they're like, we're getting ready to call it. We need to bring the family in here to come, you know, and see their loved one. And that just, of course, adds a whole nother aspect of emotion Mm -hmm. and high stress. So um, that was perhaps, I think, one of my worst days ever because number one, I had interacted with this patient before. I called him by his first name. I, even when he wasn't my patient, I would go by his room and be like, hey, like, good to see you're still here and, you know, you're slowly improving. He's like, I should be getting, you know, downgraded soon. I'm like, great, awesome. And then, you know, to now standing over him and, you know, doing compressions and you know just seeing that life literally like disappear is just probably one of the worst things I I think I experienced as a new critical care nurse and of course the wife was uh, I can't even talk about it it was just it was horrendous but you know it's it's part of working as a critical care nurse and how you cope with these things I discovered is talking about it truthfully talking about it not only with my coworkers, but of course with 
my husband, I talk to him a lot about these things and it really helps that he's, you know, a healthcare provider as well. So he understands what I'm saying and he understands what I'm going through. So it's a very good debriefing after a very, you know, horrendous day. And I, I think the emotion behind it, I, I feel like sometimes there's this expectation that the healthcare professionals can't become too attached or show emotion because, you know, yeah. you're, you're no longer a professional. But I think right. kind of having that emotion shows how much you saw that patient as a human. They weren't just your patient. They were your friend or, you know, they right. were a human to you. And that's why it's so hard. Definitely. And, um, you know, in the beginning of my nursing career in general, I, I made it a point to, I don't know why, maybe it was like a self-defense mechanism that I was probably establishing very early on, but I had made like a conscientious effort to not get so attached with my patients simply because of that. I guess I was just always scared of being comfortable around them and like, you know, getting to know more about their lives. And I guess I would always fear that something would happen. And then of course it would end up hurting me in some form, but I very quickly began to realize that when I remove my human aspect, my human side of, of nursing, it, um, it really made me a crummy nurse. Like I didn't, I was, I was perhaps very unpleasant to be around initially. And I quickly realized that I shouldn't look at it that way. Like I had to think about the fact that these people, I'm seeing people at their very worst days Mm -hmm. and being any kind of help, even if it's just being a nice person is it really goes a long way. And that's something I didn't realize until I think it was until my, my son was hospitalized when I was on the other side of the, you know, patient side. And I quickly began to see, you know, the things that I yearned for, the things I sought after as the loved one of a patient. And it like quickly changed my perspective to how I need to be as, as a nurse to, you know, to help people and render aid, any type of aid during those very difficult times and any small act of kindness was the world, you know, yeah. when nurses would bring me like extra cups of water for me to drink, you know, or if they would bring my son like a little toy or like those things were, that's the human side of, you know, I think that's what makes a nurse a nurse. It's adding the human component to healthcare. That definite that experience definitely really changed my my outlook and how I need to treat people more like uh, like human beings. Yeah, that's interesting that you you got to kind of be on that other side and kind of have this awakening moment to to see the nurse that you want to be. So that's lovely. Mm-hmm. What is a weird or unexpected experience that you've had at work? If you're comfortable (laughs) sharing, I'm sure you have a thousand. Okay. I was so excited to tell you about this. So this past weekend, I had a patient who required leech therapy and to answer any misconceptions or, you know, from like what you're saying from like Grey's Anatomy or what's real and what's not. Leech therapy is very real. It's a thing that happens, and I'll explain a little bit more about under what circumstances we use leeches. So this past weekend, I was taking care of a patient who had received a flap. Usually when a certain part of the body is injured, they take 
tissue from another region of the patient's body and then they graft it to the injured site. So they had a part of their left thigh taken and then put onto the right ankle area. That new tissue on the ankle is what's known as the flap. And the problem with flaps is that number one priority is you want to keep that tissue alive. And how you do that is through warmth. So you usually wrap it in like this like warm blanket and it's a little machine that connects to a tube that blows hot air and you wrap it around the injury site, the injured site, the flap. And you have to do constant neurovascular checks. You want to make sure that there's blood circulating, that there is, that it's warm. You want to make sure that the pulses on that site are reflective of viability Oftentimes during surgery, they install this Doppler, this kind of small little thing that goes on the flap, and then it connects to a box, which is called a Cook's Doppler. When you put it to a specific setting, you're able to hear the blood flow Mm. through the flap, which is indicative of viability and that, you know, there's still flow going through that new graft. So our biggest thing is to try to keep those flaps alive. A big issue that we run into sometimes is that they get so just congested with blood. They form something called hematomas, which is just a fancy word for blood pooling, kind of like a big bruise. In order to prevent all that blood from pooling and sitting on the fresh new flap that we want to keep alive, we use leeches to suck the blood out and basically decompress the flap, if that makes sense, not not let it get so big. So it had been a while since I've worked with leeches. I think the last time I'd worked with them was probably about maybe half a year ago. It's not something that's common. We also do work with maggots, by the way. We had this patient who was ordered to have leech therapy every six hours. And when it was my turn to do her midnight treatment, you know, you have to go get them from the pharmacy. You know, they can't tube them up to you. And then when you get them, you get them in two different bottles. One bottle is where the leech is alive and it's like swimming in like water. I don't know what kind of solution it is. And then in another bottle, it's full of like 70% isopropyl alcohol, I believe. And that's after the leech has done feeding. You put it in there and then it dies. This leech, for some reason, was the most stubborn leech I have ever worked with. And I say that because usually... We always make fun of them because they're like little like puppies. They have their own little personalities. Like you can tell like when you kind of interact with one, like based on like how well they like latch onto the skin or to the flap, you can tell like, oh, this one's going to be an easy one. This is going to be a good feeder. You can also tell like this one's going to give me a hard time because it's not latching on well. It's kind of like a little baby. Like it's not like latching well. (laughs) But I couldn't even get to that point. I couldn't even get to the point where... I needed the leech to latch onto the patient, onto the flap, because this particular leech that I was working with was perhaps one of the most stubborn leeches I have ever worked with. And I literally was trying for 20 minutes because we use these like tweezers to kind of like pull it out of the tube, the little container, and I could not get it out. Like its suction, like on the end was like so strong onto the tube, onto the sides of the, of the tube that I couldn't pull it out. And so I was in there and mind you, this was like at midnight, one in the morning and I'm here in the dark room, in the patient's room, like trying to pull the leech out, trying to be quiet. You know, my patient's trying to sleep and all of a sudden my coworker kind of sees me like from outside and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I 
I can't get this leech out. And she comes in to kind of, you know, try and help me. And then, so now you have me and this other nurse trying to pull it out. She can't do it either. Then we have one of our, our techs or like CNAs who's walking by. He's like, what are you guys doing? And, you know, me and my coworker were laughing at this point. We're like, I can't get it out. And then he's like, he's like this ex-military guy. So he's like super buff and he walks in. He's like, here, I can do it here. Just watch this. And then like, <laughs> we give him the tweezers and he's trying and he's working and he's like, yeah, I, I can't do it. And so... I was getting really frustrated because, I mean, I need to get this therapy going. I don't have time to sit here and play with a leech. Like, I needed to start doing its job. Anyway, every time we pulled, I would get scared because I'm like, I don't want to like, you know, I don't want this leech to like rip in half. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I was like, they're expensive and I don't want to have to call for another one. So Jason is coming up and he's like, here, I got it. And then he couldn't do it. And he's like, okay, let me try something else. He grabs a glove, puts a glove on. He's like, why don't you grab some of the patient's blood from the flap and like put it on my glove so we can like smell it, hopefully latch, unlatch from the tube and then come onto my gloved hand. And we're like, okay, good idea. So grab a little syringe. I spray a little bit onto the glove and then the leech starts moving in that direction. Finally, he unlatches from the tube. He goes into my friend's gloved hand and then we're like, oh, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. That's such a great idea. Then we grab the tweezers and we're getting ready to transfer it over to the patient's flap. And it wouldn't come off. It wouldn't come off of the gloved hand. And so we were like, can you try and get it off? He's like, I can't. He's like, it's stuck. He's like, it's getting uncomfortable now. Can you pull it out? And we're like, oh my God. Oh So then here you have like three of us in a patient room trying to like unlatch a leech from from the gloved hand of my coworker because I was thinking like, oh my gosh, what if it broke through the glove and Mm -hmm. it's like sucking my coworker's blood out? Luckily it wasn't, but you know, he's like, yeah, this feels really weird. Can we like take this off? (laughs) So we tried like, we ended up turning on the faucet, running water over the gloved hand and the leech. Finally, after like maybe 40 minutes, I'm not kidding you, it was a long time. We were finally able to get this leech out put it onto the flap and then get it into a good position where it can start feeding and sucking. And then, and then that was it. (laughs) And then that was it. We were able to get it to feed and it did its own thing. And yeah, I mean, so just to kind of give you some info, little fun facts about leeches. So when they're eating, you have to do frequent checks on them. You have to keep looking at, you know, checking on them frequently, making sure that they're staying on that side, that they're not traveling to other places. My coworker, one of my coworkers is walking by my patient's room. He's like, oh, I think you lost a friend. And then I like, I ran into the patient's room. And then of course you see like a trail of blood on the floor. Oh, and then I leech trying to like squirm away. And that happens very often. That's like, what I was going to ask. Yeah, that happens very often. Sometimes when they're done eating, they literally unlatch, they fall off. And of course, if you're not there at the moment when they fall off, they will fall off the bed and then... In order to find them, you literally just have to follow the trail of blood. You said that leeches are really expensive. How do you have an idea of how much they are if you have to order another one? They're like, please be careful with it. Like, they cost a lot of money. And real leech therapy can cost up to $350 per day. And this person was using every six hours, so four leeches a day. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yep. Yep. That is expensive. That's so oh my I know does anybody ever flat out refuse leech therapy I I mean I don't know what alternative methods there are to to tackle the hematomas but no there have been instances where patients like straight out refuse they're like 
nah, I'm not, I'm not down with that. And I mean, it's not like one of the first line treatments that we go to in order to reduce those hematomas. You know, usually when we have to get to that point to leech therapy, it's kind of like, this is kind of like a last resort kind of thing. Like, Mm -hmm. let's give it a shot. I, I think there was one time where a patient did refuse. They were just grossed out by it. And you said that you guys, people name them mostly just the medical staff or do the patients also become attached? Okay. (laughs) No. That was in Grey's Anatomy where he was like, this one here and this one. And (laughs) he wanted to keep them afterwards too. Such a biohazard, those things. If they're like really cute, they'll be like, oh, you know. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. (laughs) You're just here to serve a purpose, have a good meal. And then you lived your life. Yeah. So why do you guys use maggots? To eat dead tissue. When you have a wound that's just surrounded by just a whole bunch of dead tissue or eschar is like another term that we use. We use maggots to to get rid of it, basically. Surgically, doctors will like debride it, try to remove it and irrigate it. But in those cases, when it's probably not working or not effective for some reason, they use, they use maggots. Yeah. Oh my. What is the end goal for someone in your position? Is there some type of promotion or position that RNs sometimes work up to I mean I've seen so many RNs retire as RNs I think generally speaking when registered nurses become registered nurses you enter a world where there are many possibilities simply because number one there are many different kinds of nursing many different fields of it many specialties that you can always jump into when you're, you know, when you feel like you've reached your max potential in a certain area. I've had friends who love jumping from, from different specialties and then trying to maximize their potential in each of them. And then they like to move on. Like, for example, I had a, I had a coworker who worked with me in the surgical trauma acute side, and she just wanted to jump into, you know, NICU and it's completely different. Yeah. You know, you work with traumatic adult patients to, you know, little preemie neonatal babies. And that's the beauty of nursing that you can literally jump around into whatever specialty you want. Because, well, number one, you you have the license to care for patients, but of course you will also receive the proper training Mm. to, you know, the specific field that you choose, you know, to, to pursue. Typically though, when nurses who stay in like a field that is very uh, specialized and they stay there for long periods of time. Usually they, you know, like to gather their experience first, uh, feel comfortable themselves. And then eventually they are given the option to be responsible for precepting new nurses Hmm. onto the unit and, you know, training them as well, whether it be new grads or experienced nurses some nurses, you know, if they continue serving for you know, extended periods of time there and they show interest in wanting to be a leader within that unit, they can, you know, be promoted or recommended to be a charge nurse. Charge nurse is basically a nurse who is in charge of all the nurses and all sure. the all the admissions and who comes onto our unit and all the, you know, discharges, who gets transferred, you know, making sure that the flow of the unit is, you know, cohesive and that it's going smoothly. And then of course, you know, you can move up to be like a, like a supervisor or a nurse educator. Those are some of the like typical things like in the unit, if you decide to stay in one designated area. 
there are some nurses who do nursing and after a while they feel like they've reached, you know, their, their max and what they want to do in registered nursing. And then they decide to do, to go back to school and pursue different avenues. There are some nurses right now that I work with that decided, you know what, I want to do something more with what I know. And they decided to go to medical school. But typically, I mean, it's rare, but there are some instances where nurses do want to go that route, medical route. But, you know, registered nurses, they tend to go through the NP route, like become nurse practitioners, if they'd like. They could go into CRNA, which is Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist, which is basically, um, they function like uh, anesthesiologists. I I can't tell you specifically like what the difference is between a a CRNA and an anesthesiologist. What else? Some nurses can get their doctorates in nurse practitioning or their PhDs and go that route, which is more heavily research-based. My biggest goal for me is to just keep gaining years under my belt and learning as much as I can in in uh, the surgical trauma field, especially in the intensive care. I love surgery and trauma patients. I That's my jam. I really love that. I want to work towards getting my certification in critical care nursing. Okay. It's called a CCRN. Once you have like a certain number of hours working as a critical care nurse, then you qualify to take that exam. I actually am currently working right now on getting certified as a trauma nurse. So it's called TCRN, which is Trauma Certified Registered Nurse. And it's basically a certificate, a nationally recognized certification in, uh, you know, in trauma nursing. So yeah, that'll just be another like certification that I would have under my belt. That's amazing. I had no idea that there were so many different certifications involved in nursing. So you really can just oh, dive yes. deeper and deeper into a specialty. That's amazing. Do you feel like there's there's something else that you want to share about the job that I didn't cover? Is there something that you think some listeners should know? You know, I had some friends uh, recently tell me, oh my gosh, I don't know how you do nursing. It just seems so hard and something that I would never be able to do because I don't, for example, I don't do well with blood or I don't do well with, you know, whatever it is that they, they fear. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, I'm like, look, nursing is something that can be done by anyone. It it is, it does take a lot of uh, discipline. It takes, of course, a lot of hours to study and, you know, and finding that schedule that, that'll, you know, allow you to reach that goal. But it provides a lot of flexibility The the need for nurses is very high. There's a high demand and most employ- employers are willing to be flexible with you, especially, you know, if you have, you know, experience under your belt as well. And, you know, for those people that I have nursed friends that like still are pretty squeamish with blood and they just, you know, choose not to work in an inpatient setting or a hospital setting and they'll do something more mellow like clinics or home health. And that is the, the possibilities are endless is what I'm trying to say. So yeah, if you want to accomplish it, do it. I highly recommend anyone that's, that's interested in pursuing it to, to do their research and, and go for it. Honestly, it's a very rewarding profession for many reasons. It really is. A big thank you to Nancy for donating her time to the show. 
I'd also like to give a big thank you to all of our healthcare staff who are and have been on the front lines this year. Thank you for all you do.